a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm here with John Fullerton today. Um, just a little background on myself. I am um, a partner in Open Path Investments, which is a social impact real estate company. I started uh, this series, Journey to Impact, um, interviewing um, impact investors and impact founders, uh, specifically because of who I am in terms of what enjoy what I enjoy the most. And that is, is that um, lots of conversation going on in the world of impact investing regarding uh, what I call the grammar of impact, which deals with the outer focus, metric-driven, measurable, our measurement obsession with uh, the industry. But um, largely forgotten in the equation are humans that actually create these extensions. And what uh, makes us feel alive, at least in my case, and when I'm communing with others in small gatherings, is that essentially it's, it's the journey part. It's uh, the Joseph Campbell-esque uh, moments that we have, that we all share in common, the archetypal um, psychic and material moments that we all have in common. And while the details may be differently uh, for each and, one of us, you know, each and every one of us, we do have a lot in common that we share as a community, as a human community. And given that we're all um, at some level experiencing um, some form of blessing with an abundance of resources that often extend beyond our uh, individual needs and our family's needs, it's like, what are we being called to do? Um, how to live intentionally and to live in a way that uh, feels more meaningful, not just for ourselves and more just for ourselves, but also for our fellow human beings. And so that's why I'm very excited to be uh, joined by um, John Fullerton, who's been on one of these journeys, and he'll be sharing a lot more about um, that inner journey that took him from a very conventional Wall Street um, role to um, what he's doing now uh, with uh, the Capital Institute. So I want to um, welcome you, John. I will do a bunch of high-level secular bio things that are um, typical of these, but in essence, um, we will drop more into um, sort of the personal side. But I do want to give um, a high-level understanding and um, a showcase of what John's done o over time. He did start his uh, financial career at J.P. Morgan, uh, on Wall Street. No, I need to explain who JP Morgan is, but what's probably more um, exciting for this conversation will be that migration from the JP Morgan to the focus on regenerative finance, which has been, um, from my understanding and reading of John's work, has been happening over the past decade. So, John is the founder and president of the Capital Institute, which is a nonpartisan collaborative focused on a regenerative economy, also the author of Regenerative Capitalism and How Universal Principles and Patterns Will Shape the New Economy, is a fellow tonic member, which I'm also 
a member of as well. A uh, great organization started by Charlie and Lisa Kleisner. And I'm also a principal in Level 3 Capital um, Advisors, which is John's holding company for impact investors, or his own personal uh, impact investments. So welcome, John. Thank you. Yeah. Good yeah. And so, um, again, if you guys can do me a favor, who's on the line that's not named John, uh, John Fullerton, if you can do me a favor and, and uh, mute your background noise, I'd appreciate it. Um, John, maybe to start with a little bit about that journey, about what was sort of turning, turning inside of you um, in the mid-2000s or early 2000s, or maybe even before that, uh, maybe a sense of denial, a sense of coming to, and just what was happening internally inside of you. To really um, make that shift and to actually start that journey. Virginia, so uh, it actually goes back uh, almost embarrassing to how long ago, but um, I, I would say I, I was I left JP Morgan at but I I had been restless there for years before that, and I I um, kind of moved around to different parts of the firm, primarily from capital markets to investing. And each time I made a move, it kind of postponed the itch, if you will. Um, and um, it actually began thinking about aligning capital and purpose while I was doing private equity investment. And in 1997, made my first impact investment, which was in a charter school management company called Edison Schools. So I've been thinking about this issue for a long time. And really it was the merger with Kate that changed you know, fundamentally changed the culture of Morgan and uh, made it very clear that the culture, which was really the main reason that I stayed there so long, was a wonderful culture and uh, quite unique on Wall Street. It became very clear that that, that was over. It, it had been dying for years, but it was now clearly over. And so uh, I, I really left with no plans and no idea what I wanted to do next and certainly no grasp of the environmental crises um, and uh, sort of said to myself I was going to take the summer off and then think about it in the fall and I started thinking about getting involved in charter school, the charter school movement and and ultimately decided that wasn't for me but while I was in that journey, uh, a sort of the kind of re, you know, rebuilding what I wanted to do next, um, I experienced 9-11 kind of up close and personal. And that, that experience really shifted everything for me and uh, pushed me into much, I, I, I sort of jokingly refer to it as my deep think period. And mm -hmm. I, I probably, or, or you know, my, my walk in the woods or my climb up the mountain or whatever you want to metaphor. But I, I read just a ton of books during that next sort of five, seven years. Uh, and I was dabbling in impact investing during that time uh, particularly through Investor Circle in those days, but really trying to figure out what the hell was going on in the world. And um, so that was, that's how it all started. Yeah. So was there something um, like, I mean, maybe give us a sense because not all of us um, have the um, existential experience of being in um, a Wall Street context. Like, I mean, um, was there something, were you sitting at a boardroom high up on the 37th floor of Manhattan and just like, um, 
all of a sudden it felt like you were in a universe. Sort of help us understand what what's happens in, in, in the inner Wall Street world. Yeah, so that's a, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I, um, I, the closest thing to kind of a epiphany moment for me occurred actually years earlier. Um, it was in 1995. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the Wall Street, even at Morgan, which I would say was kind of a verified, um, very uh, highly high ethics and high integrity and uh, you know, genuinely we, we, we had a sense that we were sort of special and that we, you know, it wasn't this kind of, you know, um, money hungry, you know, do whatever's legal to make money kind of thing. It, we, we kind of, believe it or not, sort of felt that there was a higher calling to our work which isn't to suggest we were doing God's work, but there was a way of doing business that, you know, the financial system was central to the integrity of the global economy and you needed banks that you could trust. And, and we all um, generally believed in that. And then and there was a lot of truth to that in those days, but, but increasingly at a personal level, um, you know, I felt I was working toward this um, goal of what, our culture defined as success for us. And what that meant, even at Morgan, but certainly in a Wall Street culture, was, you know, running a bigger business and making more money. And um, I remember the, 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 the sort of epiphany moment. I was, I had recently been kind of um, put in charge of our global commodities and commodities derivatives business, you know, at a pretty young age. So I was, you know, now kind of a Mr. Big Shot at a young age. And I had to fly to um, uh, Singapore or Hong Kong, I guess it was, uh, to meet the team, you know, part of my team that was based there. And uh, it turned out I had to fly on Father's Day uh, just mm -hmm. because of the way this calendar works. And these were the days when, you know, managing directors got flown around first class. And so here I am sitting in the Singapore air, first class chair, mm -hmm. New York Times on my lap, which... I had two young children at home, one newborn and one two-year-old at the time. And so you don't get much time to read the Sunday paper when you have two young kids at home. And so I, I, I should have been happy as a clam because I'm, I got all this time and I got first class and I'm Mr. Big and I'm going to meet the troops and I was miserable. Uh, and it was because I, I wanted to be home with my family and mm -hmm. I was out pursuing the golden, golden ring, so to speak. And, and um, so I looked down at the newspaper and on the uh, left hand or on the right hand column, there was an article about how um, corrupt and mismanaged the um, the low income housing federal low income housing system was, and it was just kind of the story. The, the message was lots of big problems in the world that need fixing. And on the left hand column was an article about Walter Annenberg, mm. who. Long before the Giving Pledge, uh, he, he, for those who don't recognize his name, he was a big media guy, and um, uh, he had, he made front page news because he had just decided to donate um, the bulk of his fortune, which I think was 350 million bucks, which in those days was equivalent of a billion dollars, I, I suspect, but certainly metaphorically a billion dollars, and he gave it to 
three or four educational institutions. And, you know, it's all good. I mean, it's sort of, he was the American dream, right? He lived the success story and business tycoon turned philanthropist in your retirement and, and then get to read about yourself in the New York Times. And I, I remember just having this visceral reaction that I didn't want to be that guy. And, um, and that there was plenty of money in the world and plenty of problems that needed work. And while I was still young, I wanted to get to work on the problems rather than climb this ladder of success to turn into my version of Walter Annenberg someday. And I, and I say that with no disrespect to Walter Annenberg. He, he, he sim- simply just symbolized the, yeah. the, you know, the, he was an exemplar of the success story of our society. And um, so in, in many ways, I say to people, I, I quit Wall Street that day. It just took me another four years to muster the courage uh, to actually walk away. Sure. And then, and then what was, um, so after you had this uh, summer off, uh, like what in particular um, resonated with you that drove you into thinking about uh, money more um, from a multi-stakeholder, three-dimensional approach? Because, um, I mean, one's not trained like that uh, yeah. in finance, but uh, there's a heavy leaning toward understanding biomimicry principles uh, from my readings of what you've um, shared with the, with, with, with the world. Yeah. So, I mean, where did that shift sort of occur? Well, the, the, um, you know, the, the kind of, let's call it, you know, triple bottom line stuff, if you will, that, that I was already kind of thinking about. In fact, I, I remember, um, I remember starting to write a paper early on in that period that I, I, I had a, a, a working title called Social Capitalism and um, thinking that I was sort of inventing some new idea. <laughs> and then someone said to me, have you ever met Jed Emerson? <laughs> and, um, but, you know, but in truth, the conversation we had in the investment committee when we did the uh, Edison Schools investment, which was, you know, not a, we weren't like practicing. I mean, we invested 20, $22 million dollars in a, in an early stage company, mm-hmm. um, and had the exact same conversation in our board, in our investment committee that, you know, you could have read about Ford foundation having when they decided to put some money in, you know, do well, can you make money and sacrifice return, all that stuff. Um, and so the, this idea of, you know, a more holistic approach to value creation somehow just, I, it was intuitive for me. And, um, and, and I would say it was in the kind of the deep think learning period after I left that I discovered uh, complexity science and living systems and biomimicry and holism and and all of that just really resonated with me like like this is truth. Yeah. Um, you know, I basically very quickly actually the other thing going way back um, that that really motivated me. Come, that I'd forgotten to, or neglected to mention is um, I, I was holding this um, tension between the invisible hand of capitalism, which I've been trained to believe in and generally believed in. Uh, and of course, there is some truth to it. Um, but also the golden rule that is sort of central to virtually every major religion in the world. 
and I actually started a discussion group at my local church, and this had to be back in, you know, again, late 90s, uh, and it ended up being called um, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, Christianity, so it's a, it's a Christian church, so it was called Christian, but you could have named any religion. It was called Christianity and Capitalism, colon, oil and water, question mark. <laughs> and, and it was about the question of reconciling the invisible hand and the golden rule. And frankly, that conversation was pretty amateur and didn't really go anywhere. But it became very clear that there was a lot of interest in it. A bunch of us Wall Street warriors showed up. Um, it was a men's group kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and it was very clear that that was an important question. And um, uh, and even though we didn't resolve it at all in that thing, I'd say that that sort of reconnecting uh, my my spiritual beliefs and the mm. wisdom contained in all of the world's religious systems seemed completely out of alignment with how capitalism was playing out. And um, and then when I learned about living system science and complexity science. And in a sense, modern science, as opposed to the science we're taught in school, mm-hmm. um, it just became very clear to me that modern science is actually, you know, amazingly in alignment with the old wisdom traditions of of East, West, and Indigenous. Yeah, and that's made clear, for example, in the encyclical. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it sort of dawned on me that either the human that the human economy was a thing that was out of whack, and it had nothing to do with socialism or capitalism. It had to do with um, uh, kind of well, to me, it's a long conversation. Yeah. But essentially, it became clear that that science, modern science, and wisdom were essentially saying similar, if not identical, complementary ideas like the importance of relationship um, in, in, to health. And I had just spent 20 years in a culture where relationship became increasingly you know, an afterthought. And in fact, Wall Street moved from a relationship culture to a transaction culture during my career there, mm-hmm. thinking we were making progress and that that was you know, reflective of the modern competitive global market system. But in fact, we were moving, you know, further away from how uh, living systems actually work. And so, uh, just to complete my earlier thoughts, so it became very clear to me that that both our wisdom traditions and our science were in alignment, and capitalism was out of alignment. And um, and so, I'm pursuing a really simple idea, which is that if econo- if our economic system is to be sustainable over a long period of time. You know, there's there's either two things that are true. Either uh, we convince ourselves that the human economy is the only exception to the rule that says all all systems that sustain themselves behave the way living, you know, in accordance with these principles, or we need to move the human economy into alignment with these patterns and principles. And and that seems like a pretty simple, obvious no-brainer to choose from. The hard thing is to figure out what that actually looks like, and even harder, how we get from where we are to where we need to be. And was so is that the genesis and the basis for what the Capital Institute is? Is that the outward manifestation and sort of the the field working, grounding these ideas and trying to do the transition? Um, 
And maybe you can sort of outline um, a little bit about how that got started and where it's at right now. Sure. So the answer to your question is yes, um, uh, but we didn't get started there. I would say we we really, we meaning I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I've been wrestling with this question uh, for years um, and, um, you know, started writing about it. Um, uh, I remember the first thing I wrote, sort of my coming out of the closet, if you will, was I, I wrote a paper on E.F. Schumacher, the relevance of E.F. Schumacher in the 21st century, and that, that was probably in 2007. Um, but I didn't, I was just wrestling with some questions. And, um, and you know, my, my kind of, my friends who know me well and knew my background, and, you know, they, they, they kind of thought I'd lost my mind, I think. <laughs> I um, bet. And, uh, and then the financial crisis happened. And then all of a sudden, more than I deserve credit for, people suddenly thought I had predicted it. And I had some sort of insights into, and, and of course I didn't predict the crash any more than most people, but it just reinforced to me that, you know, something was seriously wrong. And in the same way that 9-11 convinced me at a, at a visceral level in a way that, you know, no one could convince me otherwise that, you know, that was a horrible thing that happened, but it also reflected something much deeper that none of us probably still understands. Mm. Uh, and to me, these are all connected and they all have meaning beyond, you know, I mean, the, the, the meaning of the financial crash was not simply that a bunch of mortgage fraud leads to a bad place. The meaning of that was that the entire system is broken and unsustainable and will collapse and did collapse, but for the bailout by the central banks. Um, but it's a much deeper problem than most people who have analyzed it would would say. That most people would say, well, the banks didn't have enough capital, and there was fraud in the mortgage market, and then. It, but it, to me, it's a that's just a the, the collapse is a symptom of a much deeper issue. Um, so yes, yeah, so so really, after the the financial crisis, I guess you know to be blunt, I had the courage to stick my head out and, and, um, and launch an organization with no real plan, no clear vision, uh, really, really just a container for the question. Yeah. And, um, and, and what it is and what it was meant to be and what it is now and what it's going to be is less important than it being a container for the questions. So how does that, how does that misalignment happen? Like, I mean, how can we be human? creatures of the earth and yet we can create extensions that are out of alignment with our very um with the very source that brought us into being so um just sort of take us through what you've discovered um you know you had a pretty significant write-up on this but i'm understanding on like where did the imperative and the motivation to become misaligned with the very source of our being um start to originate well, that's, um, that's a big question and a great question. Um, I, I'll just share with everybody kind of my current understanding of it. Um, mm. uh, but, it, you know, I probably would have answered this differently a year ago than I do today. And so this is by no means a uh, finished product. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, increasingly, and in fact, I, I have a new colleague, uh, Joe Brewer, um, some people may have seen his work. He's he's pretty prolific on 
medium in particular. And um, he's working from the context of cultural evolution, mm-hmm. which is a, a big idea and, um, and essentially trying to understand the, you know, as the words imply, the evolution of human culture and, and what we kind of both have come to from different experiences is this, you know, it's, it, it, I guess I would start by saying is that we're, to, to, to get a handle on trying to answer your question, um, we need to be able to zoom out to longer time frames than we're normally accustomed to thinking in. Like, like particularly if you come out of the financial world. I mean, in long yeah. time, long term in finance can be a year. Um, and <laughs> at uh, best, sometimes. Sorry. At best. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, next quarter is a long time away for yeah. a lot. And so, uh, but but even ignoring the problems of Wall Street, you know, just I, I think most of us think our basic frame of reference is kind of somewhere from our parents' childhood to maybe our grandkids when they're kids, right? Not when they're yeah. old, but, and, and I don't know how many years that is, but it's, it's a couple generations. It's nothing in the scheme of human culture. And, um, and I think to, to get a handle on your question, um, you know, going back, in history is, is, is critical. And in, in the context of Western culture, um, you know, the big shifts are the, you know, what we call eras, right? So there was the ancient era and the medieval era, and now the modern era. And unless we force ourselves to think about it, most of us probably assume that we're in the modern era and that's it. Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing coming after the modern era because we are now modern. Um, and of course, lots of people have been thinking about this and writing about this, and turns out that's probably not true. But I think that is our unquestioned mm. framing when we think about these things. So, um, so the answer isn't, you know, socialism or cap versus capitalism, which are all in our current framing. Uh, at the very least, I think we need to go back and understand what caused the shift from um, the medieval era to the modern era. And I do think the roots of the answer of your question are in that, which is that, you know, there were plenty of problems with the medieval period. Um, You know, it was a time, again, this is a Western culture perspective. There'd be a different story for Eastern and and Middle Eastern, but but from a Western culture perspective, um, you know, we, we moved out of a world where, you know, you know, it's been written that I can't remember who, who wrote this, but essentially we humans didn't need to think for ourselves because the church did the thinking and the Pope told us what to do. And, you know, most of us were basically, um, you know, um, uh, subsistence farmers. And we kind of, if, if we had a moral worldview, it came from the church and truth therefore was, was told to us. And, Copernicus comes along and, you know, and posits that the earth is not the center of the universe, um, but that the earth is rotating around the sun. And that puts into question the whole kind of church-centered, God-centered, Pope has a direct line to God worldview. And, um, and suddenly we're being taught that we can think for ourselves and, 
the, the elite scholars were discovering all kinds of stuff and uh, and out of that came the kind of individualism and you know um, uh, uh, reductionist analysis like we can figure stuff out and if we can see it it must be real and so we in order to solve the old problem which was we're not even thinking for ourselves we're just sort of living in this um, mythical reality and of course you know the the church because it was a big powerful institution was subject to the same corruption that all powerful institutions are so it wasn't perfect it wasn't all seen and it lacked all of the knowledge that we gained in the modern era so it couldn't possibly have had complete truth so in in fixing that problem we created the current problem um and so it's not it's not to say that the modern age is bad and the modern age was wrong and that reductionist analysis is not incredibly valuable but by reducing what's complicated into the parts you lose sight of the whole and so now we're having to fix the problems of the modern era with our a next era of thinking which some people are now calling the integral era no. the, um, <laughs> the, tra- the challenge is that the problems of you know the medieval era weren't life-threatening to everything on the planet they were threatening to certain cultures and and inhibiting growth and development but they weren't life-threatening this is the first time at least from my reading of history that um that literally the life on this planet is is at stake as opposed to life in one culture or or one region or or one island um Mm. so i'm i'm babbling on i did I answer your question? Yeah, no, it's good. I, I think I would just add that um, a part of that around that same time, uh, the uh, Cartesian split was was actually a big part of it. I mean, the idea that Absolutely. that the mind body. Yeah. So, I mean, just you, you see how it's reified in our language, how we actually um, separate ourselves from the outer world. I mean, the idea of the objects, the subject object split is a huge invention that is that is complicit in all of our language and and our framing of things and before that um the outer world the nature the natural world used to be thought of from a phenomenological perspective so it was always an unfolding there was no static phenomena to be studied or observed that was separate from me um i just didn't even know about it i was I would participate in the world from a uh, from a unifying, evolving, unfolding, more of a poetic existence. I'm not saying that life was easier, but it definitely was different in terms of yes. perspective taking. And so when all of a sudden we separated the natural world uh, from ourselves by objectifying it, and I put some huge scare quotes around objectifying it because that's an illusion by itself. That in itself turned the mother into a commodity, and when and when the mother became a commodity, the mother Earth became a commodity. Um, that in essence started leading to, I think, the potential for a misalignment uh, that you know that we're talking about. Which I want to fast forward because what I really I totally agree with that. Yeah. that. That to me is part of the that is the, the break from medieval era to modern era. Yes. Um, and there were many good things about that, right? But, but, it, but it contained within it the seeds of our destruction, if you will. Which, um, fast forward to where the Capital Institute now, 
is working on putting resources, team, and thought into this theme of regeneration. And um, I see that word being used more and more by people in impact that who are looking to evolve um, beyond our current understanding of what it means to be impactful. But people who want to go the next step are using the term regenerative. Maybe you can sort of um, unpack that one, what it means, and why it's important to go in that direction. Sure. So um, uh, I'm delighted if that word is, I mean, it does seem that it's become a meme yeah. that people are latching onto, right? I, um, I like to use my good friend uh, John Elkington's story as, a, as an example. I mean, he's, he coined the term triple bottom line 25 years ago. Uh, and I would argue that idea of triple bottom line is at the heart of impact investing mm -hmm. and B Corps and ESG and probably just about anything else in this space. And um, uh, he actually wrote a piece in Harvard Business Review last year where he did a product recall on the term triple bottom line, <laughs> uh, which is a brilliant, you yeah, know, I love that. humble and, and uh, very clever way only an Englishman could do uh, <laughs> uh, approach and and um, but if you read the piece it's very short he, he essentially says that you know even though the idea was meant to trigger transformational change it's kind of been watered down into an accounting idea and you know we got our tape measures out and our calculators out and we're trying to put numbers on it all and once you do that you reduce it to numbers, um, it loses its power. And, and of course, the other thing I would argue, I think he would agree with this, is that, um, you know, the triple bottom line concept is great, but when push comes to shove, there's still really only one bottom line. And um, particularly under stress, when businesses are stressed, there, there is really only one that matters. And businesses do pretty much what they need to do to, to, to keep that one working. And if they can do two and three at the same time, great, but you know, when push comes to shove. So I think he, he acknowledged that it's not working for what he intended it for. And, um, and I, I, um, strongly have felt for years that impact investing that do well by doing good was a pretty shallow, you know, made you feel good and yeah, yeah, rah, rah, I'm all part of it, but it, it wasn't really probing nearly deep enough into, the systemic issues of our of how our economy works and how how um, uh, powerful and destructive uh, capital can be, um, and um, so uh, you know, for me, the, the word regenerative I I first experienced through my work in managing grasslands. Uh, I have a partnership with the Savory Institute and. Alan uh, is very passionate about this idea of shifting from holistic decision making to, or sorry, from reductionist decision making to holistic decision making. And he's, and he's applied it on the large landscapes uh, and, and proven that if we shift to a more biomimicry approach to managing large landscapes the way the buffalo used to roam, yeah. it's not only good for the, uh, the buffalo and the landscapes, um, but it also is more um, uh, more economically viable for ranchers to manage their herds that way. 
And so this wasn't sort of a theory. Like I literally had been out on a horse and seen it and, and I've invested in it and, and it's proven to be, uh, it's proven that the regenerative potential that's laying dormant in all the world's grasslands can be realized in the real world, including translating into measurable ecological benefits, measurable carbon sequestration, and um, uh, and more profitable ranching business. Um, and then I heard about so, but interestingly, the Sabre Institute doesn't really, in, in at that time, this is now, gosh, starting ten years ago. Um, they weren't really using the word regeneration. They were using the word holistic. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about holistic management. And then I bumped into Regenesis Group and Bill Reed and colleagues, and they were applying the idea of regeneration to real estate development, mm -hmm. uh, something that you know a little bit about, Gio. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so there is clearly a thing called regenerative real estate development. And again, I saw through real investment projects um, uh, with a guy named Anthony Splendorio, who is a uh, who introduced me to Regen to Regenesis, um, real value creation in real estate that I could you know I could go through, but it doesn't matter. The details are less important, but you know opportunities potential that came out and was realized that a typical real estate developer wouldn't have seen through a conventional lens. Mm. And so you know I'm st I'm starting to put dots together and saying, well, if this can work in the context of a landscape, like large landscape, I knew it worked in the context of a, a, a more traditional crop farming operation. Regenerative agriculture was a thing. And now I see it's also working in the context of the built environment. Um, it became very clear to me that, that it was real and that if you follow a, a system science approach, these are just different systems, but the human economy is another system. And so if it works on those systems, and it was true, it had to be, uh, it had to be relevant to the human, the entire human economy. And so I guess what I, what I feel like our unique contribution at Capital Institute is to uh, see how those, this regenerative process is already at work in the real economy mm -hmm. and moving it from the context of agriculture or the context of built environment to a broader context of the whole economy. And I would say the, the, the real um, pathfinder in, in this work is Jane Jacobs, although she's most known for applying it in the context of neighborhoods and cities. But if you read her work, she was clearly thinking uh, about its application broadly to economy. And, um, and interestingly, I, I only learned this recently, Bucky Fuller. Who, uh, who actually his final book, written the year he died, 1983, is called Grunch, which was his critique of capitalism. Um, hmm. And in it, he, he um, talks about regenerative universe. And um, uh, so at any rate, it, you know, this is not a new idea, but for whatever reasons, no one has really pushed it in, in a serious way to be a, a design, a set of design principles for for the entire human economy, not just segments of the human economy that are closest to living systems. So um, the way we're trying to um, accelerate the manifestation of this idea in the world, and I and I say accelerate because it's happening. Um, it was happening long before I came along. Um, but there is now a 
a global movement of efforts that are aligned with this living systems mm. idea. One of the principles of living systems is is place or or um, a community in place is the language I use. So we launched a network last year called the Regenerative Communities Network. And we use the word community importantly because it's about communities, not economies. An economy is an abstraction yes. uh, that, mm. that economists use to put numbers on something. But what's really mad, matters, and, and again, this is based on what the principles tell us, are actually whole communities. Um, and so, so if, if people are interested, there's a um, there's a distinct effort that you can find on our website. Um, if you go to capitalinstitute.org and then click on network, you'll see it. But the we have now uh, seven places around the world that that we're working with to manifest regenerative community. And by the end of this year, it'll probably be 15. And there's a pipeline of 50 that we're in touch with that potentially want to join. And then there's probably another 5,000 initiatives that we even know about. I mean, we can see dots on a map that we don't have a chance to connect. But but so this is like, think of it as a bunch of networks yeah. that are invisible to the real world, like the mycelium in the soil, but it's happening. And, um, and our sort of theory of change is if we can connect these together, learn all learn together, um, it'll accelerate change faster. And so we'll have an infrastructure um, building up from the bottom that will create resiliency as the world's crises continue to unfold and, and spin out of control and, and cause more and more damage. Um, and where impact investors can play and need to play in this yeah. is to shift the focus from I do renewable energy or I do education or my portfolio I can measure my impact this way to recognizing that capital's purpose is to be in service in, in, in our lifetime. The purpose of capital is to be in support of this emergence of regenerative communities. And so anytime we can align our own investments into that transition, in my opinion, that's the highest and best use for our capital. And so place-based investing is the way that manifests. Mm -hmm. um, I, would, I would predict place-based investing will be a thing. Maybe Wall Street mm -hmm. will call it an asset class so they can go raise capital and charge fees for it. But importantly, um, you know, it's kind of like let's all pick some places that are important to us and, uh, and dig in around that place across the full spectrum of what's needed in that place, not determined by us all knowing capital, but determined by the people who actually are leading that regenerative process in that place. And if the returns on that are high, fantastic. And if they're not so high, that's okay too. Uh, we need to figure out how to flow capital into that because that is the, mm -hmm. um, in, in, you know, my, in my, in my best understanding and, you know, someone until someone gives me a better idea, that's, really what has to happen, which isn't to say that we don't need to put up wind farms and solar panels like crazy. Um, but if we just put up wind farms and solar panels like crazy and don't reconstitute the, um, the DNA of how we operate human economies, um, you know, we're not actually, we're just postponing the crash that we're heading toward. Um, and I was, I was like to say, if we had free carbon, carbon free and money free energy tomorrow, for everyone on the planet, we would collapse faster 
then we're going to collapse if we if we keep on the path we're on mm. because the because because climate change and carbon emissions is just one symptom of a much deeper problem um and if you want to you know, if you want to really get depressed, study the, the species extinction and yeah. desertification and, you know, there's no more insects and blah, blah, blah. So it's a much deeper issue than, than quote, just climate change, even though climate change is, is uh, understandably and correctly the, the big issue that we're all increasingly, I think, focused on. Yeah, I feel like I want another call just on place-based investing. I I I um I think there's a lot more to learn there because most um, investments um, actually neuter the place. Um, you know, this is just the world that we live in that we're obsessed with trend. We're we're um, we're placeless, and so I agree with you as a home base that that's really. Um, it's fascinating how you came to that conclusion and, and and are working with that space. I feel like that actually warrants a whole conversation. I I do want to ask you though a comment you made where you said during stressful times a triple bottom line company really becomes a one one kind of company or um, focus on the financial and not the ecological and the social. But do you think we've reached a point in time where those values, uh, ecological values and social values and governance values in some businesses actually become the actual strategy, not a peripheral thing, but actually become much more robust. So I'm really going after challenging the concessionary compromising um, of these values, which the traditional product has. You think there's enough critical mass out there, enough of a subculture, enough values-oriented investors that, and that there's enough of a tailwind to support and where businesses actually who embed values, those values within their business, um, actually become more valuable and as a differentiator. So turning the tables, just sort of curious on what you see in your space, in terms of the deals that come through your your pipeline, the your portfolio, um, and just when you're out there talking and seeing and reading, do you think we've reached that time or not yet? And the ones that do are able to do it are just few and far between. Um, boy, I've got a lot of thoughts. So, first of all, I you know what I said earlier is probably way too absolute. I mean, there for sure. To make a generalization that there's no such thing as a triple online company, that's wrong. I mean, uh, you know, I just go back to my mortgage. I mean, I think, and there's, I think there's a difference between big public companies and what they, in a sense, need to do given the system they're sitting in versus yeah. a private company and particularly a private company with a very enlightened um, capital source. Um, lots of different things can be done, you know or said differently, Patagonia can do all kinds of things yeah. <laughs> that Citibank can't do. Um, and so certainly um, uh, a private company and a private company owned by the right either person or group of investors, I think, can do a lot of things, which, by the way, I think is one of the really hopeful opportunities. One, one of the interesting facts I just learned recently is that, um, and this going to big companies, is that... Um, 75% of global GDP 
is represented by companies that still have a um, family, uh, uh, a meaningful family involvement in the business. Wow. Doesn't mean family control. Yeah. But, you know, for example, the Walmart still own 45% of Walmart. Yeah. That's a no-brainer. Should they decide to exercise, I'll say it very bluntly, should they decide to exercise the responsibility that they are not currently exercising, um, that company could transform overnight. Um, mm -hmm. We saw what happened when the Rockefeller family decided to engage with Exxon, even though they owned a very small percentage and probably probably didn't own, I, mean, I don't even know, if, whether they owned it didn't matter. The reason they, they had power was that uh, it was sort of a moral authority of the, of the, of the, of the company and its origin. Um, but, you know, the Ford family owns a meaningful percentage, a bigger control piece of control of Ford than... So all of these public companies, you know, and if the statistic is right and it came from uh, a wealthy family that's a, part, a participant in a family-owned business global network, so it, it was real, it was a real number, um, think about the potential of... Uh, those families engaging with the businesses that they still have influence on in a way that's very different than the typical share, you know, passive shareholder. Um, I think that's a really powerful opportunity. But, um, you know, kind of circling back to your question, I mean, if, if I were to describe what happened to J.P. Morgan during the last 10 years of my life there or my career there, it was that the financial pressures got higher it got harder to be the good above the fray, you know, triple A bank. We only do first class business in a first class way. And there was pressure for earnings and return on equity. And so I think, I just think the context we live in is like a world where money is our value system. Yeah. And so for an individual company, whether it's a beautiful little startup in Costa Rica or, <laughs> you know, Citibank, uh, to buck that trend is um, it's pretty hard, and and that's why to me, you know, any thought that a you know blossoming beautiful little businesses on their own can change this is is short sighted. And what we really need to do is wrestle with understanding why the system is what it is and how we need to shift the system so that the you know the beautiful little companies flourish mm -hmm. and the big businesses that are in conflict with the way the world needs to be um either through bankruptcy or change or you know social outcast or regulation or new laws um are 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 put to put out to pasture yeah yeah well, I love ending up on a pasture metaphor, being a third-generation dairy farming kid. Um, that no, but it's, I mean, Gino, your business, you know, it's, you're kind of a, a microcosm. Each one of your projects are place-based communities. Correct. And, you know, I love the way you um, – I'll, I'll do a little advertisement for Gino's you firm. But, you know, they, they – what they bring into their communities – you didn't use the term regenerative, but what intrigued me when I studied it is it's highly regenerative. Um, and that's a longer story for another day. But uh, and, you know, I would say your business model is proof that regenerative is a thing that actually works in, again, in the context of, of real estate. But interestingly, in the social side of it, more than the Correct. ecological side of it. Correct. Um, and so, you know, 
regeneration is not an ecological idea. It's a it's a social and ecological idea rooted in ecological reality. Yeah. Um, but it applies equally to all of the social dimensions of human uh, community and culture and whatnot as well. So yeah. anyway, I forgot you're a dairy, dairy farmer. Yes, um, third generation. Um, my brother and I were the first ones not to go into uh, dairy farming. <laughs> uh, but it was a great life to grow up. And when my dad retired in 2008, I mean, that was the long, um, my ancestors came from the Azores, which is uh, islands out in yeah. the Atlantic, part of, part of uh, Portugal. And so there was lots of uh, Portuguese immigrants in the early 20th century. And they had their... They either came here to grow flowers, to fish, or to to dairy farm, uh, yeah. for, for for the yeah. most part. So there's a big uh, Portuguese fishing community in this town, Stonington, which is someday I'll live in Stonington full time, but I don't quite yet. But it's uh, lots, lots, it's a, there's this whole Portuguese community there. It's really, it's beautiful. Oh, nice. Well, I, I do want to wrap up. I want to do this again. I feel like we um, are just clearing our throat uh, for the most part. Um, and I would jump right in with the place-based uh, investing. I really think that that's front and central and related um, um, is the role of direct investment as opposed to public equity investment. I think those are day and night differences to get at place-based investing. Yeah. A lot more to discuss. Maybe the fall, I'll circle back with you. We'll get online earlier, so we'll get your sound. Yeah, uh, I apologize, everyone. Uh, uh, cleaned up. But again, uh, this is Gino Borges with uh, the Journey to Impact series. I'm here with uh, John Fullerton. Would like to thank you. We will have uh, Joel Solomon uh, next week, and uh, which is really excited, who wrote the um, book Clean Money, has done some beautiful work up in British Columbia and really is the epitome of um, social regeneration in, in conjunction with um, a friend of, um, I'm guessing, you know, Carol Newell as well, John. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, talk about, you know, doing place-based investing for the last 20 years. Exhibit. They're ex your exhibit A. Exhibit A, exactly. So um, hopefully you can join us and uh, we'll have John back in the fall and uh, dive a little bit more more into this. But want to, um, again, thank, thanks, John, for all the good work and um, Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks here in uh, New York City. Yeah, look forward to it, you know, Thank you. Thanks, okay. everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. <laughs>